Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 71 of the Mandolin's a Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, the Mandolin Cafe. Wow, well actually this morning, they had a great uh, post with a new album out on Bandcamp called La Mando, I believe, and it is uh, dedicated to the Mandola, and it's available on Bandcamp, I just said that, and there's a a track on there called Baroque, which is stellar, so I'm going to go and purchase that. Uh, It's by Joseph Dodo Shiner. I'm not sure if I'm saying that last name right. It's got a bunch of killer musicians on there. So head over to the Mandolin Cafe and check that tune out. It's pretty sweet. Also brought to you this week by Peghead Nation and their newly revamped website. It is awesome looking. If you haven't signed up for Peghead Nation yet, get 30 days for free. Just go to the website pegheadnation.com and type in mandolin beer for a code and you can check it out any course of your liking and there are some killer courses and other instruments besides mandolin guitar banjo fiddle dobro ukulele and bass and this the best teachers man sharon gilchrist joe k walsh mike compton john reichman aaron weinstein marla Fibish, and chad manning um, the videos are super high quality. You can download the tabs and notation, and there's a ton of killer songs to play. I've used it a bunch. So again, go get your uh, go get your free 30 days using Mandolin Beer at checkout. Also, Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out our website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And if you don't follow them on Instagram, you are missing out. They post some killer pictures all the time of some of the most beautiful mandolins. So be sure to check out their Instagram. Speaking of Instagram, uh, Ear Trumpet Labs, another sponsor this week, they had a great thing in their story where they were asking people who use their microphone to um, name a song that would uh, explain how they felt about their mic. And uh, I just got the Edwina and I used it in my duo live a few weeks ago. And I couldn't even think of just one song. The thing blew my mind. I absolutely love it. I have a live gig this Saturday again, socially distant, and I'm looking forward to it, not just to play, but to use that microphone live again. It was really, honestly, super inspiring. And the holidays are right around the corner, everybody, so treat yourself, treat someone you love to one of these super versatile microphones. You can use them in the studio, you can use them live, and you can use them for or anything you want. They sound incredible, they look incredible, and they inspire you to create. So thank you to Ear Trumpet Labs. Speaking of inspirational, thank you to Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins designed and built in Austin, Texas. I still think about one of Tom's mandolins from his personal stock that he let me play when I was over there in Austin back in October. And whew, what a beauty. Making some great stuff over there. So be sure to check them out online at ellismandolins.com and their Instagram. So let's get into it with David. Part one is a doozy. Some great travel stories, some hilarious busking stories, and how he got into playing mandolin. It was a pleasure to talk to David, and I hope you all enjoy part one as much as I did. Part two next week. Cheers! And now it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast David McLaughlin. David, how's it going? Going great. So nice that you've invited me to do this. What an honor. Oh, it's an honor to have you on here. It's uh, it's such a pleasure. I love your playing. And um, oh, first off, you. I want to congratulate you guys on your um, induction into the Bluegrass Hall of Fame. Uh, that's a, that's a pretty well-deserved, well-deserved award.
I appreciate that. I never even saw it coming. I think all of us were like uh, totally shocked. It's like uh, I, I didn't even know you could be alive and be inducted into the Hall of Fame. I didn't know much about the Hall of Fame. Well, do they give you much heads up? Like, do you know way ahead of time before the award ceremony or is it something? They- no, as a matter of fact, uh, I didn't know until, I don't know, maybe a few weeks before, but never even suspected or saw it coming, never had any idea that we could possibly qualify for such a thing in our lifetime. I'm serious. I didn't, we, I don't think any of us did. There were no hints or anything. <clears throat> Just got a call from the IBMA one day and they said, uh, you know, you're being inducted into the Hall of Fame this year, and I'd like you, you know, to, since we're doing a virtual thing, we'd like you to maybe assist us in getting this together uh, as far as uh, all of that. And I went, what? You're kidding me. This is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys, I mean, you guys have played like legendary venues. Uh, you know, I've, I've spoken to people from all ends of, of things, but I believe you're the first person I've talked to who's played like Madison Square Garden and and the White House. Yes, we played uh, Madison Square Garden, the White House. We played uh, two or three inaugura- inauguration festivity events for different presidents on uh, both sides of the spectrum. You know, we're like we're like the caterer. We don't care what what party they're in. If, <laughs> if they if they pay us, we do it. Absolutely, <laughs> that's you a know. good business practice. I feel. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we played. Uh, uh, I think we played uh, like we played for the Reagans, and we played for Clinton and and uh, Bush and uh, Obama inauguration. So uh, you know that's what we do. And then Madison Square Garden was that a, was that like a headline gig? Was it a package? How how was that? It was a pa- it was a country package sponsored by the Stetson Hat Company. It was called Hats Off to Country Music. Oh no, kidding! Really. And so it was a country package show with uh, Alabama, the Gatlin brothers, Charlie Pride, Janie Fricky, and uh, and 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 us, and uh, Mac Wiseman was on it. Engineer, won't you let your whistle moan? I run away team of my horses ain't enough to make me stay So throw your rope on another man and pull him down your way Make him into some And it was a country show, they didn't really sm- separate the bluegrass from the country And that was a, a really nice event It was televised and uh, nationwide te- TV show back in the 80s that's cool, man. That's like, what a, you know, I always think of like the Grand Ole Opry and the Ryman and all these places as like legendary venues. And sometimes you forget like outside the bluegrass realm, like there's, you know, like <laughs> Madison Square Garden. <laughs> you know, it's right. Like, yeah. You know, it's, it almost seems like you don't think of it when you think of bluegrass. So I think that's amazing. No, exactly. And then uh, uh, we did a lot of uh, like country shows. So we played with different people john anderson and other people on the same stage uh, and weren't always just confined to, to the bluegrass events right that's neat i i, I think that's the way I, I mean i love those multi 
genre sort of packages. You know, it's just a good, you know, it is like you, sometimes you go to a bluegrass festival and as much as I love bluegrass, sometimes by like Sunday, <laughs> you're, you're like, I've heard a lot of bluegrass, you know? And then, well, you know, back when I was growing up, they didn't, it, it wasn't its own genre. It, bluegrass was just in the, the category of country. And when I went to festivals and festivals and concerts, it was, it, it was uh, Flatt and Scruggs, Bill Monroe, and the Stanley Brothers, and the Osborne Brothers, and Jim and Jesse all thrown in with, with uh, Loretta Lynn and Ernest Tubb and uh, Ray Price, and you know that was it was all together. They w- they didn't separate them. That came later. You know, and I love a great bluegrass festival, but you know something about going to and just breaking it up every now and again and hearing some some different things. Well, sure. I, I, I absolutely love the bluegrass festivals, and I can certainly handle uh, 24 hours of, a day of good, solid bluegrass. But it is nice to go to the um, kind of multi-genre roots music festivals like uh, Merle Watson Festival, Telluride, and Strawberry, and all these different... There's so many different festivals now that don't just have bluegrass, but they have the jam band stuff, and you don't get scolded if you have a snare drum on stage or... <laughs> Or an accordion, or whatever. Yeah, I'm imagining you've seen some pretty, uh, some pretty big changes between you know from when you started, as far as what is considered allowable, quote unquote, on a bluegrass stage to um, to what it's kind of become now with a lot of like the jam grass bands and the plugging yeah. in and effects and different things like that, huh? But even back in the '60s and '70s, it was perfectly acceptable for a bluegrass band to appear with a snare drummer and they often did jimmy martin the osborne brothers jim and jesse yeah i was gonna say the uh, osborne brothers and jim and jesse for sure absolutely and you've played besides these legendary venues in the united states you've literally played all over the world well uh i guess you could say on on all sides of the planet but not in certainly not in every country but we did travel quite a bit we did uh we did some regular old commercial international touring but we also did some of the the state department uh traveling that kind of thing too oh cool where we were sent with uh we were sent with an an entourage of officials escort officers for the 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 trips and uh sound crew and uh guests of either the presidents or in some cases the dictators of certain countries oh wow and, uh, and the u.s embassy so wow Ever any uh, any dicey situations in any of those countries? We did have quite a few dicey situ- situations. Uh, I could I could spend the entire the entire podcast time here talking about some uh, crazy and sometimes frightening moments. But uh, just to give you an example, uh, one particular short brief story: we we went to Mozambique when it was controlled by by uh, a, a dictator who who it had been like kind of like a Soviet satellite country and the waters on the coast were patrolled by Soviet subs. <clears throat> and this dictator was being wooed by the United States government as well. And uh, we played over there, but the rebels, he, he had lost control of every part of the country except the capital Maputo. And uh, this was, I think 84 maybe, but, um, and so when we flew in, we flew in, on actually, we flew in on this airplane that was marked Air Mozambique. It was like 
literally spray painted on the side of the fuselage like graffiti. <laughs> and it had a, an, like an Air Japan logo on it that had been sprayed over with graffiti paint. And we landed. In, we landed. Uh, they, when we had, they only had flights going in and out of Ma the airport, right on the outskirts of Maputo, it, it, during the night. And when they would land or take off, all the lights on the plane, the landing lights and the headlights and everything, were turned completely off. And they turn out the lights inside the fuselage so that the the airplane could be heard, but more difficult to see because they said uh, we'd be everybody's shooting at airplanes, hoping they can uh, cause a, a plane crash. So that they can retrieve whatever they can get off out of the out of the wreckage, food, supplies, whatever. <clears throat> Whoa! That is that is the rebels, and we were warned of this by the State Department that we'd have this crazy flight landing, and they would do a nosedive to the runway, and we wouldn't be able to see anything inside the fuselage. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> and so, sure enough, and the, the captain got on and said, well, "We're going to have to, you know, make this nosedive. It'll seem frightening, but everything will be fine, folks." And then uh, they did this like severe, like near uh, weightless kind of a drop out of the sky uh, until they got to an altitude, a low altitude where they where we could feel the G forces pushing us back into our seat. Uh, and then we took off the same way, I just at night with no lights, and they made a very quick ascent. And uh, so that was kind of scary. And then we had some scary moments. There were some executions in the street. We were told not to carry cameras or take any pictures anywhere anyway that uh that i forget the guy's name who was the president of of mozambique but he ended up being killed in a sabotage airplane crash himself whoa not too long after we left the country oh my gosh <laughs> and uh he was flying to south africa and his plane was had a bomb on it or something and the plane crashed and he died but he was very nice to us. He and his wife uh, entertained us very lavishly, and there was a there was a party at, at his palace. And he also he put on a concert for us. And we were told we didn't know the situation, but it was in this old, like Portuguese, you know, Mo Mozambique and, and uh, Maputo, the capital is an old Portuguese colonial city with all this early this old uh, Portuguese architecture. And there was this nice old, grand old theater from the early 20th century. And uh, we were to do a matinee concert there and an evening concert. And we got to the matinee and there, were, there was just maybe about 10 people sitting right smack in the front row in the center of the auditorium, but nobody else. And we were wondering where all the people were. Well, come to find out it was the president and his family and his, all of his security guards wanted the matinee to be his private concert. Oh, wow. And then in the evening, we did a, a sold-out concert to it was just a – it was overpacked. It was in, And the people in, in our Africa tour, everywhere we went, were just going nuts over over the, the, uh, the Johnson Mountain Boys. That is so neat, man. Well, I'll tell you what, just the, the thought of walking on a plane that has anything spray-painted on it to me is just like <laughs> – I would be like, well, you know what? I think I'm good just right here. <laughs> I'll fly home. <laughs> In the time we were in Africa, we took like some, like but somewhere between thirty and forty separate plane flights. Wow! Then I guess uh, probably the only other story I'll tell you about Africa is when we were flying from Kenya, um, Nairobi, Kenya, up to uh, up to uh, uh, not Burundi, but uh, maybe yeah, it was Burundi. <clears throat> uh, 
we uh, had to be chased back. As soon as the airplane took off, the Kenyan Air Force sent fighter jets up and got really close to us and signaled for the pilot to turn around because they had forgotten or they claimed they had forgotten to inspect our gear. And when we landed back on the tarmac, they surrounded the airplane with with the military and machine guns and aimed at us and wanted us all to get off the airplane. And they took all of our sound equipment and stuff off the airplane so they could inspect it to make sure we weren't carrying some kind of contraband. And then after, and then uh, they made us play to play a tune for them to prove we were actually musicians. (laughs) And then they, and then these uh, security guards smiled and laughed and kind of high fived each other and high fived us and sent us on our way. So we went up to uh, Burundi, and uh, we were, and then our our uh, our escort in Burundi was uh, Diane Fossey, the gorilla woman. So she greeted us at the airport. Oh wow! And took us to uh, the first place she took us. It was actually, actually it was like a it was a dirt runway up in the mountains in the banana forest area, and uh, she met us there. But it was it was right in her area where the gorillas were, and she picked us up at the airport in a van and took us straight to a bar in a like a rustic village with with the dirt the streets were all dirt paved with bottle caps like they'd thrown like recycled bottle caps that was the pavement stuck into the dirt of the road and um, then we went inside of a of a bar that had a dirt floor and basically logs to sit on and we uh we got some beer in there and uh she got a little tipsy and we had a great time and then uh, <laughs> and then it was soon after we left africa where she ended up being murdered by the poachers jeez holy cow what kind of beer did they serve you at a place like that did they have like was it like a local sort of beer or did they it yes it was only local home brewed no labels on the on the, the all the bottles were like bomber size like 22 ounce <laughs> No labels, and we didn't know what we were getting because it was just locally made, and every bottle uh, was we, was different, no consistency. Sometimes we get a really amazing beer, sometimes we get some really bad beer and have to pour it out. But it wasn't like you could, we couldn't get any brand name beers in areas like that. We sure. could in the cities, and we you know get imported beer, and I think we also got some fake beer that was like put into Budweiser bottles. <laughs> You know, that kind of thing. Wow. Or, you know, Heineken bottles, they'd recycle them, but we could tell the labels were all old and worn and looked like they'd been washed. And then there would be some beer in those bottles that didn't taste anything like what was on the label. <laughs> well, at least they looked like they'd been washed. <laughs> Holy well, yeah, cow. we never we never knew to what degree, though. <laughs> sure. But at least they had alcohol in them, so it <laughs> like it was it was safer in some of the places we went to brush our teeth with beer than it was to brush our teeth with water. Oh wow, I bet. Oh my goodness. So how do you find yourself? What's what's your entry into the the mandolin world that finds you in in all these exotic places and and in the White House and Madison Square Garden? How'd you start out? Well, uh, I grew up in a musical family. And uh, both of my parents played music, and my older brother was getting into music, and of course I wanted to get into music, being around my parents constantly playing and constantly having musicians hanging out and camping out at our house growing up. Oh, neat. So just constant massive exposure and being dragged to concerts even as infants. 
So, uh, was it like blue bluegrass music, or was it different styles of music? Oh, er, er, everything. My parents, we were all all of us in the family were into anything and everything. Nice. So there was no, it was not a genre specific preference in our family. We listened to classical and opera and blues and all kinds of, uh, you know, where they called it race music back in the old days, black music, ethnic music of every kind, African music, uh, South American music and, uh, music of the various islands around the, the world, Asian music. We had records of like, uh, uh, you know, Koto records and, Oh, cool. Everything. Uh, swing, jazz, and country music, commercial music. My parents were bringing home Motown records and saying, listen to this. This will be good for you. <laughs> Neat, man. Yeah. So, uh, so my brother and I grew up uh, getting every record we could, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and uh, Simon and Garfunkel and all the Motown stuff and the Beach Boys and uh, – you know the birds, so we had all that, all the records, and learned all the breaks. And my brother and I both played like electric guitar and bass. And so I got started. Uh, the first instrument I ever started working on was the banjo because uh, my brother was getting into guitar, and I guess I was about six years old, and I wanted to play the banjo. So my father started showing me basic clawhammer, frailing type stuff, and three finger style. So. And that was the first instrument I started working on seriously with practicing where I actually was driven and just compelled beyond any ability for, to be controlled to grab the banjo and start working on stuff. And uh, then my parents thought it'd be good to have me and my, my brother uh, both take classical piano lessons. So I took classical piano lessons for three years. Then I, uh, during those three years, I switched over and added in classical violin because I also wanted to play fiddle. Uh, not just bluegrass, but Irish and Scottish music and Stefan Grappelli and the gypsy jazz. And that kind of stuff and i just wanted to play everything the swing and the jazz stuff and classical music so i gave a, a few uh, very pathetic piano recitals when i was a child and then when <laughs> i got into violin i gave some slightly less pathetic classical violin recitals with uh, you know either a trio or quartet with cello and viola oh nice and, um, but all the while i was learning to play Scandinavian and Scottish fiddle and Irish fiddle work and Canadian. I was really in that. So uh, just constantly into buying those records. My parents were, were the greatest enablers because they were funding it. They were, they would buy us any record we want wanted. So my, my parents were <clears throat> musicologists and collected records. Yeah. So I, so we listened to records and my father had thousands of, records 45 78s was buying albums and anything we wanted my parents would fund because they thought there's no such thing as bad music there's no such thing as music that shouldn't be listened to that's great 
and uh, they didn't try to steer us in any particular direction w- with uh, what we preferred. And I, I, I loved playing rock and roll and jazz growing up. And uh, the bluegrass just came along because the opportunity came, uh, a, a better opportunity came along than, than uh, you know, I could have just as I could have been a rock and roll guitar player, but it didn't happen that way. What was the opportunity? Uh, the Johnson Mountain Boys. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, that's a pretty, that's a pretty good start. <laughs> pretty good opportunity. That was my first, that was really, I think the first thing for, for most of us. I had played a little bit with, uh, Buzz Busby, not on a full-time basis. I mean, of course I knew the, all the guys in the country gentlemen and the seldom scene and... All the D.C. area uh, musicians, and I was going to old time and bluegrass jams around the area. But uh, uh, I think getting together with Dudley was my first venture in pursuing something serious with bluegrass. Where before Dudley, I was also jamming with some rock and roll teenagers thinking, yeah, I want to be a rock and roll star. Uh, You know, I thought maybe electric bass. I was into bass playing, too. So uh, actually, my first my first paid job ever was playing the bass for Steve Hickman. Oh, was it really? Yeah, not on a regular basis, but he was the first person to actually give me money to play an instrument. Wow. So it was for a particular square dance, and I think he gave me like 10 bucks or something. So it's like today. It's like today's pay. <laughs> yeah, just like today's pay. No, but, no, but 10 bucks was huge. I thought, oh, heck wow. yeah, man. You know, this was back like in 1974 or 75 or something. Yeah. And uh, then I got a few paid gigs. Of course, I was a big time. My brother and I were big time buskers. So when we were teenagers, we'd go down on the streets of Georgetown. I, I was born and raised in D.C. because my dad was a federal employee. And so uh, we, my brother and I'd go down on the streets of Georgetown or Capitol Hill or, or some of the hot spots, DuPont Circle area, and we would play on the streets until the police would run us off because uh, uh in dc i don't it probably is still the same but back in those days you had to have a vendor's license mm, sure which was very expensive but but the thing is is the other street vendors who were licensed and i can certainly understand and respect it, their point of view is if we take money from pedestrians or get money from pedestrians that's money that they don't get and they're and they're paying for a license. So, if any of the street vendors that were that were there legally would uh, file complaints on us, and and all over that area there were people on the streets or stores even. Like the, the, we'd park ourselves in front of a storefront in Georgetown, and people coming into the store say, "Hey, listen to this music. These guys aren't too bad." And they throw us a, you know some money, and then the people in the store would think that's money they're not getting. <laughs> I certainly. Being a being in business, I certainly respect that point of view. So, but we never bought any kind of a business license. We would just pick a spot and, and play until the until somebody would run us off. <laughs> Gen- generally, it would be the police. They wouldn't they wouldn't give us a ticket. They'd run us off, and then they tell us if if, if we see you on this corner again, we're going to give you a ticket. So we just go to another corner where <laughs> where, where where a different cop would be on the beat. You know? Yeah. 
but uh, I still to this day love busking. And uh, it's funny because I think a lot of people, I just like busking because it's fun. It's a great way to practice. You get, you get to practice and, and earn a, a, a dollar or two at the same time. It, it doesn't pay much, but it's fun and a great way to practice. Another thing nice about busking is you don't have to have a whole set because since pedestrians will listen to a tune or two or a song or two, then they move on. So you don't have to have, you can just play the same songs over and over again. So like every, you know, you only need to know like five or six songs <laughs> right. or, or if you want to practice one particular song over and over again, you can do it all evening. And the thing about busking is like, I'm known as like this uh, hall of fame guy and, and the, the, my people, the people who are acquainted with me in Winchester, Virginia, where I currently live. Uh, they think of me as some kind of a celebrity person, uh, you're not just the Hall of Fame, but this guy's played the Grand Ole Opry and and, and Carnegie Hall and the White House. And so I, I, every now and then I'll be down busking and someone who knows that about me, but they otherwise are not intimately acquainted with me, they'll find me down there busking. And, and I had this one guy not long ago came up to me and said, David McLaughlin, what has brought you to this? I'm so sorry. <laughs> Oh, I brought me to this. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I just like to play on the street. Yeah. No, dude, no, I don't, you can't say that because I, I needed him to throw me some money. So I said, I know. I said, no, I know. You know, it's like, just, this is what happens. You know, it's like, I'm, I guess, you know, dropping hints that I'm a washed up has been. <laughs> so, you know, then he felt sorry for me and gave me a $20 bill. Oh, it's brilliant. I was busking on the streets of Winchester playing banjo that's what i use that's usually my busking instrument if i'm playing by myself is banjo banjo <clears throat> if i'm playing with other people i just play whatever instrument they need but i was playing banjo on the streets down there by myself and a young couple walked by with a five-year-old boy and a three-year-old girl <clears throat> and they totally ignored me but the boy didn't ignore me he looked at me and started like dancing and like hopping back and forth and he lingered and stayed back with me in front of me and was dancing while the while the mom and dad walked down the the uh, pedestrian mall with the little three-year-old girl and they didn't even notice that the boy had stayed back with me and was dancing to my music and then finally they looked around their feet and didn't see the boy and they turned around and saw him like 50 feet back and the dad yelled get away from the beggar <laughs> Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, people, man. And that's just one of, you know, that's one of a, many stories. A lot of times tourists, a, a common thing I hear from the tourists is people will say, keep on practicing and one day you might actually be a professional musician. Or <laughs> one, keep practicing and one day you'll play at Carnegie Hall or maybe the Grand Old Opry. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, one day maybe. <laughs> One day, maybe you might actually play on a stage somewhere, they'll say. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but I, it's funny, but yeah, no, I love busking. That's a lot of fun. You know, it's a fun, it's a fun life to, to do stuff like that. I've, I've always tried to choose things in life that are feel-good things. Jobs, things, that, things, that, things that, that I earn from, I like to feel good about them. I would, I would not like hating my job, feeling like I had to just do it for the money. But I never want, I never will retire unless I'm physically unable to do the things I do. Because like I said, I love what I'm doing. 
Yeah, and you can hear it. You can hear it in your voice. Uh, the, the things I do for my income are my greatest enjoyments. Yeah, that's awesome. That's priceless. And I'm not going to ever stop playing music. So I can't say, uh, I, I'll, I will not be one of these musicians who gets on Facebook and announces, I am re- now retiring. <laughs> right, right. No, I, that's not to say I, you know, I won't maybe stop earning from it or I won't maybe possibly go touring. There are some aspects of the music that I'm not particularly drawn to. And that one of the, the, the aspects of music that I'm not drawn to is heavy touring. Uh, I don't mind flying or going straight to a concert. I don't mind traveling to a concert, but what I mean by heavy touring is like two weeks away from home doing a, a, a tour of the West coast. Uh, like back in the early days of the, the, the touring days of the Johnson mountain boys, we would be away for two, three weeks at a time. And like, if we played in San Francisco, we'd tie it together. Or like we'd play a, a show in LA and then we'd go, we play a show and San Francisco and then we play a show in Eureka and then we play a show in Portland and then Seattle and then Vancouver. And then we come down into someplace else in Montana or something. And, uh, that was kind of brutal. And then, um, I took over managing the group for in the 1990s and, uh, decided, uh, to not do it that way. So like, like hypothetically, if we'd had a concert in LA, I arranged it so we would fly to LA, do the concert and fly straight home. Even if we had a concert in San Francisco the next week. Oh, wow. So instead of tying it together with a tour up the coast, uh, and the thing is people think touring is real glamorous, that kind of, but it's not really, it's not (laughs) like we go up the Pacific coast highway and stop at all the lookouts and, and, and relax and have a, uh, a drink somewhere. We, it, it's, you know, it's, it, we'd be driving overnight, getting to the show, then we'd have load in and we'd have to rehearse and we'd have to. So it wasn't like, uh, always, uh, the best way to do things. But then when I, when I started uh, managing the group and doing all the logistical planning, then we could take trips into like the Napa Valley and spend a day doing the, you know, going to hitting the wineries, that kind of thing. And that's not, and also I don't mean to say that touring was always bad. It wasn't bad. We had a great time. We were like brothers on the road and we did stop and have some great times on the road, but it got to be brutal and and uh, it was we were it wasn't the best for our health to be losing the sleep we had and the food we were eating wasn't the best. And back in the eighties, they didn't have uh, f- food at grocery stores like they have now. Everything was full of chemicals. You couldn't. They didn't have a you know a Wegmans or a Fresh Market or a, you know what are those all those nice organic food stores? Oh, sure, like Whole Foods and Whole Foods. Yeah. We'd be lucky to find something like Hostess Twinkies. <laughs> right, right, cheese whiz. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, something like that. It was really hard to find a good, healthy snack on the road. Now, when you were like in high school, was it, did you always want to be a musician? Was that like, was that your, your main focus? You know, I think I knew at an early age that I really wanted to be a musician. I didn't really know whether I could pull it off until... I was in high school and then, uh, and then I thought, yes, I can do this. I, I, I think I can choose to do this and succeed at it. 
when I was in high school, I was seeking out all kinds of musicians. I was trying to hook in with the, uh, the uh, hot club musicians in the D.C. area because I was really into you know, Django and Stefan Grappelli and, that, and, and, and other like Romanian music and all kinds of gypsy type music. And I was also trying, I was playing in the, I was in the Scottish fiddle community and I was actually a demonst- I was a Scottish dancer. Uh, growing up so i did that did irish and scottish dancing so that's the kind of things my parents subjected me to music and dance and some theater the arts what so um, when did you start digging into the mandolin kind of like seriously and finding like your your big influences and working on that sort of stuff because obviously with fiddle you've kind of got an idea of of it i was obsessing on fiddle all during my teenage years. And even though I was working on some guitar and I was still playing a lot of banjo and guitar and viola and other things, I I was really going through like this, a mad obsession with fiddle. And I was playing literally six to eight hours a day, every day. It was crazy. So to answer your question about when did I get into the mandolin, my, my dad had a tater bug on the always on top of the piano because he played some mandolin. It was always in tune and he'd play it some. And I wasn't really all that interested in the mandolin uh, in early childhood, even though we were taken to Bill Monroe concerts. And I loved Bill Monroe and I loved the mandolin. And I loved Bill Monroe personally as a child because he was always really nice to me and other people that I was hanging out with, uh, John Duffy and... and, uh, Mike Seeger, of course, and Ralph Rinsler were all good friends of the family. So uh, I was exposed to a lot of mandolin. I just didn't really have a, a, a calling to play it. But then uh, some neighbor had a, a Gibson A40 and brought it over and, and loaned it to my dad. And so I started messing around with that a little bit. And then my high school math teacher... I guess when I was like in tenth grade, had an A Junior from nineteen twenty four brown brown top A Junior, and she bought it at a yard sale for three dollars. <laughs> and she brought it into the class and said, "I bought this because I know you like that, you know, mandolin and fiddle and stuff." So she gave it to me. Oh my gosh! And so uh, I started playing that, and I had the A forty like a blonde top A40 from like maybe the late fifties or early sixties or something. And, uh, when I got the A junior, my dad gave the, the, the blonde A40 back to the neighbor that loaned it to us. Cause that guy found it somewhere at a yard sale in DC too, but he didn't want to give it away or sell it. He wanted to keep it. Just didn't, he didn't play a mandolin. He just thought it was interesting yard sale find. So he loaned it to, to, to my dad for maybe a couple of years but we returned that, and so then we still had the tater bug, and then I had that A Junior, and that was my that was my first uh, like uh, archback, non bullback uh, mandolin that I had that we had in the house, and then playing that thing, I loved it. Then I got hooked, and then my parents bought me uh, uh, an A two Z for $350 and bought that from Freddie Goodhart in Lexington, Virginia. And, uh, I, that, that mandolin was amazing. 
and it had a really, really loud chop, and I could actually play bluegrass and aggressive, assertive, in-your-face music with that. It was a monster. Unfortunately, I no longer have that. I sold that a few years ago when I needed, when I was going through some financial stress. <laughs> sure. I sold that and, and after having owned it for like 40 or 50 years. But anyway, so I played that mandolin, and that mandolin got me hooked on playing the mandolin, even though I, I, I had access to Mike Seeger's lore and borrowed that thing oh, wow. a, a, a few times. And, I, and then I borrowed the lore after I got the A2Z, the lore that I now own. Uh, when I'd go over to his house when I was a kid even, I'd take it out and, and play it. We'd just go over to his house and, and uh for dinner or whatever, and my dad, my, my dad and Mike Seeger were very good friends. Starting around 1950, when Mike was just 16, I guess. Uh, my dad, my dad was a cousin of Alan Lomax. Oh wow! Who who was the musicologist at the uh, Library of Congress? And Alan and my dad were cousins. So when my dad moved to D.C. in around 1950, Alan Lomax. Uh, would take him around and introduce him to the, the the local music scene. My dad already knew some of the people and knew of the music that was going on in D.C. after World War II and all the people that were moving to Baltimore and D.C. And uh, so Alan said, you need to meet the Seegers. And so uh, when Dad and Mike met, Mike was 16 and my dad was like 22. But they became close very close friends and uh mike didn't drive at that time and didn't have a car but my dad had a 1934 packard and so all of a sudden mike seeger had access to wheels with a driver and that was my dad <laughs> <laughs> so they'd go to they go to new york together uh and they'd drive to baltimore together and they go all over the place together and and uh mike spent many nights at my parents' house. But anyway, back to the, to the mandolin story. Uh, Mike bought his first lore, which is my 1923. He bought that in 1958, the year I was born. And he bought it in, in Peoria, Illinois. All right, you guys, and that's where we're going to leave it for this week. From this point on, we talk about the incredible story of how he got his lore, and we talk about a whole bunch of lores that he's had uh, had uh, the the opportunity to play and get to know, and it's amazing. It's some great stuff coming up here yet for the next week. So cheers, everybody. Thank you for listening. Thanks to the sponsors, Mandolin Cafe, Peghead Nation, Northfield Instruments, Ear Trumpet Labs, and Ellis Mandolins, and thank you for listening. Be sure to like all my stuff on the social meds, and we'll talk to you next week. Cheers, everybody. Thank <laughs> you.